warriors in their own words, is brought to you by The Honor Project, committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. We at The Honor Project wish to thank our 150,000 listeners for the wonderful comments and continued support. We are ending Season 2 with this episode and taking some time off to celebrate the holidays with our families and loved ones. We'll pick up again in 2019. We wish everyone peace, harmony, and happiness for the upcoming holiday season. During this time, we hope you'll listen to any episode you may have missed, and if you like what we do, please recommend our podcast to anyone who may enjoy these remarkable stories. And as always, this presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Charles L. Phillips was a 26-year-old captain in the U.S. Army Air Corps, piloting B-29 bombers in the Pacific Theater during the final years of World War II. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his heroics during the strategic bombing campaign over Japan. We interviewed Charles Phillips in 1991, and he told us remarkable stories, beginning with forming his flight crew during training in Texas. We got together, each of us had had some training before we arrived in Pyote, Texas. Pyote is near a town called Pecos, as in the law west of the Pecos. And there was a B-29 school at a base that was called Rattlesnake Bomber Base, and that's where we first met and got together and flew our missions. We flew a few missions in B-17s, which was quite a different airplane. The B-29 had tricycle gear, the B-17 had a tail wheel, and some more conventional old-style landing gear. And it flew differently, it just had less power, and uh, it had a sort of a wide cord wing, whereas the B-29 had a short cord and a long span wing. The B-29 was a lot more efficient and more responsive on the controls, I thought, than the B-17 was, although the B-17 was a grand airplane to fly. Getting the crew together the importance was getting crew coordination and crew discipline. We had to learn to say the, only the right words over the interphone, to keep one another informed, to do what we were told to do, that sort of thing. That kind of discipline uh, paid off over the target. We had several instances where we had real emergencies and the crew performed in a spectacular, calm fashion because they had been trained that way. And can, let's just talk about the B-29 and what made it so advanced for its day. The B-29 development started before World War II. Everybody needed, knew that we needed a long-range aircraft to deliver bombs either to uh, the Orient or to Europe, to the targets that were deep in Europe. And so the planning began and Boeing won a competition and went to work on the development of the B-29. What made it so outstanding was that it was a low-drag aircraft with all flush riveting. The drag of the B-29 equaled the drag of the B-17, which was a good bit smaller, as you know. And the aircraft was pressurized. It had a pressurized crew compartment up in the nose, and then behind the aft bomb bay was another crew compartment where the gunners operated by their sighting blisters, and finally the tail gunner was also in the pressurized portion of the airplane. There was a tunnel that connected the forward and the rear crew compartments that helped maintain the pressure throughout the airplane. Then the gunnery system was very modern. 
Previously, the gunners had had to operate within the gun turrets and handle the guns themselves. When the B-29, they were remotely controlled by a, a computerized gunnery system. I know computer is a word that makes people wonder when you think back to 1944 and 1945, but it was a general electric computer that calculated the lead for the gunners in those remotely controlled turrets. There were many other features. It had a double turbo supercharger one uh, provided for cabin pressurization and the other provided for the pressurization to the carburetor that was needed in high altitude flight. And they were both very effective. A tribute to American metallurgy, incidentally. In the spring of 1944, B-29 superfortresses were deployed to India and China in a bold plan called Operation Matterhorn. The Chinese operation was a nightmare of logistics. Everything that was used by the B-29 from those remote bases near Chengdu, China, had to be airlifted over the Himalaya Mountains, the tallest mountains in the world. We called it the hump. And we're talking about spare engines, bombs, gasoline, spare parts for the aircraft, ammunition, everything had to be brought in by airlift so that they really didn't fly too many missions. Most of the time was spent in preparing for the mission until they could finally get enough resources where they could send the aircraft out. And it was just a nightmare of logistics. Everybody that had anything to do with that operation agrees on the fact that it was just about impossible. So as soon as an airfield could be prepared on the island of Tinian, uh, General LeMay uh, ordered them to relocate from where they were closed down the CBI operation, China-Burma-India operation, and come on over to Tinian, where they became the fourth of five bomb wings that operated from the Mariana Islands up over Japan. The Navy needed it as a major base for their operations, but to us, the important feature was that we could build airfields on these islands from which we could attack Tokyo and the other major targets of Japan. And that is what happened. Even before the islands were secure, the construction people are in there moving coral, tearing down hills, manufacturing hard stands and runways and taxiways, and we got our airfields. They prepared on each of these airfields, there were five of them, uh, 8,500 foot runways, which are pretty modest by today's thinking. But that's what we had, and we used most all of that footage on these heavyweight takeoffs. The B-29 would weigh 70 tons, 140,000 pounds, and you always hoped that every one of the engines would perform well because the takeoff was the most critical part of the entire mission. So uh, let's talk about the first bombing runs, when you had the long uh, uh, distances incurred and the high altitude bombing, just a typical mission profile. Well, even the nearest base was 1,300 miles from Tokyo, so that meant a 2,600-mile round trip. The early missions were made in formation. They were all made in daylight. They would have to form up in formation. They would have to climb to pretty great heights, like above 30,000 feet, and then work their way into the target. In the early days, the first mission was flown on Thanksgiving Day of 1944, and what they didn't realize that over the latitudes at which Japan is located, there were these great high altitude winds blowing. Today, we know them as jet streams, but in those days, they didn't know what a jet stream was. All they knew was that 
if they went into the wind, they would practically never get to the target. If they went downwind, the Norden bombsight couldn't handle the speeds, the ground speeds of the airplane. If they went crosswind, they got some drifts that were just about impossible to cope with. So the result was that they didn't hit a whole lot of targets real accurately in the early days. Until later, General LeMay came along and he saw what was happening and brought us down to a much lower level. The, the formation was, in daylight, it was a typical formation, it would be nine aircraft with a leader and a deputy leader, and there were little groups of threes, three groups of three. And they were, the closer that they could fly together, the better they could defend themselves from fighter attacks. In the high altitude attacks against Japan, the Japanese fighters had a terrible time because they couldn't keep up, they had to loiter out ahead of the formation and then make passes that would take them into the next formation and on and on. They could not make a tail chase and hope to catch up with us. B-29 was just too fast for them. But uh, later, as the bombing altitudes came down, the Japanese fighter performance went up and they began to give us fits at the lower levels. Let's get into LeMay. What were your impressions of General LeMay? General Curtis LeMay was a leader for his day. He proved that in several different ways. He took the 305th bomb wing to England and he developed some tactics there that were made standard in the 8th Air Force operation over Germany. One of them was a box formation for defensive purposes and the other one which startled everybody but worked real well was the straight and level bomb run. Everybody thought they were all going to get killed when he did that. But he realized that the Norden bomb site would not work properly if you sashayed all over the sky. You had to have a straight and level bomb run if you hoped to have accuracy. And so he insisted on that and it worked very well. And of course, he brought that to the 20th Air Force and the Marianas. He was a stickler for training, 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 practice, practice, practice. And he had us practicing all kinds of things. Uh, formation flying, we did formation practice that uh, doesn't show up on the combat record at all. We'd go out and practice formation. He knew that a straggler was a surefire customer for a Japanese fighter attack. And he insisted that the guys learn to fly formation and fly it well. But he also uh, knew the tactics. He knew the defensive firepower of the Japanese. He seemed to know the fighter aircraft capability and the pilot's capability. Japanese fighter force had been worn down by the South Pacific campaign where they took on our P-38s and the bombers and other fighter, the Navy fighter aircraft in that part of the world. And they didn't have a whole lot left in early 1945 when General LeMay came on the scene. He was a great leader. I believe he is acknowledged to be the real bombing expert of his day. He understood the problems and he had us performing in the way that he knew would be best. And we finally got to where we thought that way. At first we thought he was going to have us all killed when he brought us down to below 10,000 feet for bombing. In the latter part of February 1945, General LeMay received a message from General Arnold, who was his commander, in which for the first time incendiary bombs were mentioned as a possibility against the targets in Japan. He put this together with the knowledge that we weren't bombing accurately at high altitude and came up with a brand new notion for the U.S. Army Air Forces that we would bomb individually at night 
and that we would deliver incendiary loads. And so he finally uh, tried that in one daylight mission, which incidentally I was on over Tokyo, where we burned out a square mile of Tokyo the first time that we tried it. And then on the famous mission of March 9th and 10th, we took off on the 9th, we bombed on the 10th. We wiped out 17 square miles of Tokyo in what was one of the worst fires in the history of man. Before you went on this big raid, what were the things that he, he had you do as far as dropping down? Can you explain what, what he, why he wanted to do that? He did not have us drop down until that night of March the 9th. That was a brand new notion that came into the briefing for that mission. I can remember that briefing because we all sat in a big Quonset hut and when we heard the bombing altitudes, at first there was a silence throughout the hall and then a great gasp from all of the crew members as they realized what they had just heard. I myself was directed to bomb at 7,800 feet on that first Tokyo mission. Others were bombing at lesser altitudes than that. And so that was a complete departure from the high altitude missions in daylight where we're flying formation with one another. Here we would be flying with no light showing in the dark with uh, just individual aircraft, no formation. We're all going toward the same place at the same time. On that first mission, there were 300 B-29s which took off from Guam and Tinian and Saipan, all hitting for a gigantic cross that was laid by the Pathfinders before we got there. The Pathfinders took off about 55 minutes ahead of the rest of us and drew a great cross of fire, made out of fire, like an X, on the ground by dropping their bombs along two intersecting lines which would form a cross on the ground. When we came along, our job was to enlarge that cross into a general conflagration, a huge fire. And that is what took place to the extent that, as I said, 17 square miles were burned out on the first night. We uh, saw pieces of houses like windows and doors uh, made from bamboo, which were common to the residential structures in Tokyo, uh, actually going by the airplane at around 8,000 feet. And later, some of those particles were found in the air intakes of the engines. Uh, so we knew that this gigantic fire was, with its updraft, uh, taking heavy materials like bamboo up to our flying altitude. Well, General LeMay had ordered that all but the tail gunner remain home, and of course we thought that that was going to do us in too, that surely without any guns on the airplane except in the tail and no gunners, that we would probably just be in terrible trouble. It was going to be a huge suicidal mission. But what we didn't realize was General LeMay had figured out that the automatic weapons such as machine guns would not get to our height and that the fuses for the anti-aircraft couldn't be cut that low. And as a result, we didn't get touched by any kind of fire. And the night fighter force was non-existent, so we did not have any opposition. The, the dangers were from collision. The dangers were from the turbulence which existed over that city that night. The turbulence was uh, just as terrific as I could make it sound. I've never been in worse turbulence in an aircraft anywhere that was stronger than that night, March 10th, over Tokyo. I thought the wings were surely going to be 
just ripped off the aircraft. Now, uh, can you explain why that was? Were you trying to keep altitude? We were trying to keep altitude, and, and, and this is, is, as I think back on it 46 or so years later, the bonfire that was going on down there on the surface was throwing heat upward and parts of houses, as I said, upward. And incidentally, the odor was overpowering because we could smell everything that was happening on the surface, in the, even in our pressurized aircraft. But the, um, the, the turbulence was from that heat rising. Now, can you imagine we were in the airplane with max continuous power? That means the engines were operating at their full force uh, except for takeoff. Max continuous means you can c continue that power indefinitely. And we were dragging about 2,200 horsepower per engine. That's like 8,800 horsepower for the aircraft. The aircraft was moving right along at that weight, even though we had a complete load of bombs. Now with this updraft, suddenly the airspeed started to increase. Now, right below the airspeed meter on the pilot and the co-pilot's instrument panel is a red placard which says, do not operate over 300 miles per hour indicated. I'm looking up and seeing the airspeed meter reading 350 miles per hour. I'm 50 miles an hour over the placard speed. There's only one thing I can do. I started to pull the power back so that I could maintain my altitude. But I quickly found that even though with all four throttles back at idle, this aircraft is going up 2,000 feet a minute and the speed is increasing. And so I had to allow the airplane to keep climbing to keep from ripping the wings off the airplane. We had at least one airplane, airplane in our squadron, which I'm sure was lost because of the pilot's effort to maintain his altitude in the face of the terrible turbulence, and the wings did pull off. The aircraft was seen in three major parts as it went down over the target that night. He was just trying to keep altitude? Trying to keep altitude. They got rid of the gun turrets to, to make weight for more bombs, and, and he was afraid that you'd be shooting at each other. Can you talk about that? Yes, that was one of the alarming things about the briefing at the mission when we learned that the gunnery system would be uh, carrying no ammunition and the gunners would be staying home. The only thing we had was two scanners. A scanner is a guy in the back of the airplane that can tell if the landing gear is down what the position of the flaps are. So uh, these people were left at home and of course that was alarming to us because that meant we weren't going to be able to shoot at anything. If there are any fighters around, uh, we're just going to have to mill through it as best we could. But we did have a tail gun, uh, a tail mount with ammunition so that they could uh, fire, the gunners could fire at anything that would come up on the rear. But that was a pretty alarming element of the mission too. The most alarming was the possibility of collision. Milling around in the complete dark, three o'clock in the morning, we couldn't see any of those other 299 B-29s. And we knew they were all around us. We just knew they were, but you couldn't see a one of them. And it was, uh, it was just a kind of an alarming situation. But we got through it okay, and as far as I know, there were not too many com uh, collisions at all. And then tell me, what, what was LeMay's reason for, for leaving the gunners? Well, his reasoning that we learned later was that he was just sure that the gunners would be shooting at other B-29s. He didn't think there would be any fighter opposition. He thought we would be taking them by complete surprise, which it turned out that we did, because no fighters showed up at all. Well, General May is 
obvious intention was that we not shoot at one another. He thought that there would be uh, sightings of other B-29s that would lead a trigger-happy gunner into shooting at our own airplanes. And of course, he certainly didn't want to lose any aircraft by, by that means. He correctly foresaw that there would be no defensive fighter present, no presence of Japanese fighter aircraft that were equipped to fly at night and do a number on us at night. And so we saw none. There were no reports of sightings of fighters on those first nights. Later on, some of the fighters began to come up and they seemed to become better organized in their defense. But at first he correctly foresaw that there wouldn't be any problem except maybe shooting at one another and he certainly didn't want that to happen. So how much weight was displaced by leaving the ammo in the guy's home and, and what did that allow for? I don't have the exact an exact recollection, but it could be measured in thousands of pounds, and it would be a significant amount. General May's objective was have the bomb bays as full of bombs as you could get, and on those five missions in 10 days that we flew in early March, each bomb bay was as full as you could get it. What he cut down on was the fuel load. Now that was also an alarming situation because some of the fellows were just certain they would not have enough fuel to get back home again. But without having to climb at the high altitude and, with, and being able to cruise at a much lower altitude, we didn't require nearly so much fuel. And he had that figured out well too. In fact, before we were through, we thought General May was the ideal leader for the 20th Air Force. And I'm sure everybody would agree with that statement. So, and LeMay, how big, how big a gamble is this for him? His well, his whole career rode on it. He purposely did not inform General Arnold, who was his boss in Washington, D.C. General Arnold retained command of the 20th Air Force from Washington as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he did that with the approval of the Joint Chiefs. It was quite a departure, the only command that operated that way in World War II. But his field commander was General LeMay, and General LeMay figured that if this thing worked, fine, but if it didn't work, he did not want any of the blame to fall on General Arnold, so he just went ahead and did it. And it turned out beautifully. He got all kinds of compliments, of course, from General Arnold and the world before he was through. The bomb that was used, the incendiary bomb, was the M69. This was dropped from the bomb bay in such a way that at about a thousand feet or so, it was set so that bands holding the bomb together would release, and then it would turn into what we call 38 bomblets, or little bombs, that were filled with napalm, and whatever they hit, they ignited. They stuck to, and they burned and burned and burned. So that was how the incendiary fires were set. The M69 was a very recent development. It had been developed only shortly before we used it in, in that campaign against Japan. But we uh, used a great deal of M69s. In fact, in 10 days, we did five bombing missions and General LeMay literally ran out of incendiary bombs and had to go tell the Navy that he needed a whole bunch more. And they did not believe him. They didn't believe he'd used all of those ones up, the ones that they'd already delivered to him. But when he expressed it in, form, in the form of tonnage, he finally convinced them and they geared up for 
pretty rapid delivery considering they had all come by ship from the United States. Okay. Well, but let's talk about the, uh, the taking of Iwo Jima. What did that mean to you as a B-29 pilot to know that you had this island in between you and Japan finally and Iwo Jima? Iwo Jima is probably one of the most critical pieces of territory that you could have thought of if you were flying missions like we were in the spring of 1945. We just have a debt to the Marine Corps that you could not possibly measure when they took that island. The runway was used before the island became secure. And the first uh, B-29 landed with about 4,000 feet of coral and little else, got his fuel and, and got out of there. To us it meant a sanctuary for a B-29 in trouble, either due to fuel or mechanical trouble, he could go there and land, which incidentally 2,400 B-29s actually did that, 2,400. It was also a base where the air rescue people could operate from, and, and the reconnaissance aircraft, the photo aircraft, could operate from Iwo Jima, shortening down their trip and making it possible to be over their target, over their area, much uh, longer by operating from Iwo Jima. It was just a great thing that happened. We can never thank the Marine Corps enough. We have a meeting with some of the Marine Corps at Camp Pendleton every February at the, to the time of the invasion of Iwo Jima where we have an opportunity to tell them. And they have an opportunity to tell us that we spared them the invasion of Japan. It's interesting. And uh, tell me, there was another other guest that showed up on, on Iwo Jima in the, in the Mustangs. Tell, tell us what that meant to you and how, how their typical mission profile worked in with your bombing runs. Well, on April the 7th of 1945, I looked out the cockpit windows of our B-29 as we were heading for a target in Tokyo and saw the most beautiful sight you could imagine. A whole bevy of P-51 Mustangs were out there. There were Japanese fighter planes that were climbing up to try to attack us and these fellows from Iwo Jima were jumping all over them. It looked a bit like the description of shooting fish in a rain barrel. The performance of the Mustang was so outstanding in contrast with what the Japanese were flying that they did uh, just a, a terrible number on them as they showed up to fight these escort aircraft would attack. They were uh, provided navigation by a pair of B-29s that navigated them up to the coast of Japan and then when their mission was over they would rendezvous at a little island off the coast and our guys would fly them back to Iwo Jima. That was a wonderful thing and every time they showed up it just meant it was a whole lot easier on us big birds, the big B-29s, with their presence being there. They were a bunch of great guys as far as we were concerned. Typical, uh, typical scenario when you're crossing the coast of Japan. What did you run into first? Was it flak or fighters? Uh, just let us let, take us all the way through to the bomb run. As we approached the coastline of Japan, the first action in the airplane would be to activate the gunnery system and actually fire a few rounds out of our guns to make sure everything's working okay. Then as we crossed the coastline itself, we would probably anticipate some flak depending upon what point had been chosen as our coast end point. We're heading here for the IP, which is, stands for initial point. It's actually a turning point that would put us on the bomb run. In our case for Tokyo, for example, the turning point, the initial point, or the IP, would be Mount Fuji. 
and we would then head directly to the target. It was on the target, the bombing run, which could be fairly lengthy, that you might expect fighter attacks to take place. That would be where it would start. In the daylight formation missions, they would be loitering ahead of the first formation and would attack. Uh, usually they would attack the lead or deputy lead aircraft to try to disable that machine to break up the bombing run of the entire formation. And then they could not keep up with us too well until we came down to lower levels at least. They would then pass along to the next formation and the next and the next with the more or less head-on attacks continuing on into the formation behind. Head-on attack would be like from the 1 o'clock to the 11 o'clock positions, maybe slightly high, maybe slightly low, but it would be still a head-on attack. Sometimes they would come in from below, but we had turrets that would cover that too, so they had to be pretty careful about how they approached us, and uh, quite a few of them were knocked down by our gunnery systems. Can you explain the uh, AAA fire, what, what, what the fuses were set at and all that? Well, I was not an expert on the anti-aircraft system like General LeMay was. General LeMay had really made quite a study of the ballistics and the whole works of not only the Japanese anti-aircraft system, but the German anti-aircraft system while he was stationed over in England. And he used a quite scientific approach about it in terms of altitude and what your chances were at different heights above these anti-aircraft weapons. The uh, fuse was a settable thing. They had a means of calculating your altitude above where they were located. And of course they had to apply an angle because we were either ahead of where they were or we had already passed where they were or we were directly over where they were. So the fuse had to be set exactly on where they believed the aircraft was going to be when the shell arrived. I can testify that quite a few of them got very close to our aircraft. There wasn't anything um, uh, wide about it or uh, distant about it. When you could hear the shell go off outside your aircraft, you knew it was close. And when you got back to your airfield and examined the airplane after the mission and you saw these little holes that weren't there when you took off, you knew they had gotten quite close. B-29 airplanes seem to be able to take quite a bit of that, but there were times when some little vital thing would be hit, like an oil line going to an oil cooler. That would put that engine out of business every time because the oil pressure was needed to feather the engine. If you lost enough oil, we had an 85-gallon oil tank for every engine, but you could quickly run out of that if you had a bad enough oil leak, and then you would be unable to feather the engine, yet big troubles usually disastrous when the prop would run away and finally would come off the airplane and maybe fly into the fuselage or into another engine or whatever. That happened quite a few times. And the reason was that the engine was not shut down quickly enough. So flak could be a real serious problem. Flak was a shell, obviously, that was fired by a a heavy weapon like 120 millimeter or whatever and uh, it would have to arrive at the altitude of the aircraft at the time the shell would get there and it was quite a mathematical problem to score a hit. Uh, the aircraft is moving right along where true airspeed would be around 253 miles an hour and uh, or thereabouts and uh, so they had to calculate that 
They had to know where the airplane was going to be and how long it was going to take their shell to get there. The where it was going to be was geographical in a sense, but it was also altitude in a sense. They had to have both. And if they were going to hit you, they had to have everything right on. That shell had to arrive at the place where the airplane was going to be when it got there. Okay, so it was a time fuse, and once the time ran out, did it just throw shrapnel? It, it would throw shrapnel. It would burst. And the problem for the air crew was that uh, the aircraft might get hit in a vital spot or some person, some member of the crew, might be hit and killed or be disabled or whatever. That was purple heart material. And the thing would just burst, the shell would turn into real sharp fragments that were very damaging. We wore flak suits and flak helmets to try to minimize the problems with the crew, but a gunner could not operate in a sighting blister with a flak helmet on. He couldn't get close enough to his sighting gear, so he couldn't wear a flak helmet properly. But the rest of us geared up with that equipment when we crossed the coastline. And tell, tell me about the Norton bomb site and its limitations and its uh, advantages. Norton bomb site was probably the finest piece of equipment that had come along for all of World War II. It was so classified that you had to check it out from a vault and return it back to the vault after the mission in the early days, and you had to wear sidearms to protect your Norton bomb site. It could solve the bombing problem, and it was a matter of gyros and uh, working synchronous equipment that would allow the bombardier to sight a building through a telescope. He could actually see the corner of a building like a factory, but he had to be able to identify it, and he did that with target study before his mission. He would sight on what he felt was the primary target, and then the uh, bomb sight would coordinate the speed of the aircraft to the point where it reached the bomb drop uh, spot and the bombs would automatically depart the bomb bay. Sometimes bombs were dropped in a sequence set by an intervalometer which allowed several seconds spacing between the bombs. That was the case with the fire bombs. There was a certain amount of space that was set. In the early Tokyo mission it was 50 feet the bombs were dropped so that they would hit 50 feet apart and maximize the fire that way. One of Philip's last missions was on August 6, 1945, the same day the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. During the air battle, he was forced to ditch his B-29 into the sea. What you have is an aircraft either with engines that have been disabled or have run out of fuel. And when you run out of fuel, the airplane is going to start into a descent. So the first thing that you have to do is maintain enough airspeed so the thing will fly without stalling out or falling into the ocean. If you keep up in a B-29, for example, if you keep up about 120 miles an hour, you're going to glide the airplane right down to the surface of the water. So the first thing you do is take it down to where you can actually see little tiny waves or jetsam or flotsam in the ocean so that you can judge your distance above the water. That's pretty critical. You don't want to drop this thing in from 100 feet or 50 feet even. You want to paint it on the surface. Now, the condition of the sea has everything to do with it. In the case of our ditching, we had a flat sea, a flat calm, no swells, no white caps. So it was uh, comparatively easy to put the airplane on 
in a very smooth fashion. Once it got on the water, the airplane skipped once. And the way we could tell that it skipped was that the noise of the ocean against the belly of the plane stopped. It sounded at first like somebody was sandpapering the hull outside. And suddenly it stopped. Well, that meant that uh, we were back to flying again. So we relaxed the back pressure on the yoke and the noise immediately started again and we knew we were on the water. This time we relaxed the yoke pressure and the thing stayed on and just came to a stop like a big automobile up to a stop sign. There was no tucking under, no jolt. It was just as smooth as glass. And then it was everybody out and into the life rafts. And that's the way it went. Was the B-29's radar effective? The B-29 had a radar that we called the APQ-13. We had a radar operator as the 11th man on the crew. This radar served two purposes. One was for navigation. It would show land and water contrast quite well. And it was also used for bombing. If you got to your target and the place was covered by clouds, Usually the targets in Japan were close enough to some kind of water that you could establish an intelligent water-land contrast and hit quite close to your target. We got pretty good at that toward the end of the war. And uh, did you ever run into any Japanese uh, electronic countermeasures or anything? I don't remember any electronic countermeasures at all. We did drop some chaff, which is uh, foil, cut to certain lengths to try to De defeat their defensive radar. Uh, there was no electronic countermeasure that I can remember at all as we know it today. But the uh, radar worked quite well and we were pretty free to use it without uh, worrying about enemy action to to uh, void the radar. Mm -hmm. And uh, did your whole crew make it intact? Or? My whole crew made it intact, but I got promoted out of my crew in the course of my duty with the 498th Bomb Group in the 73rd Wing on Saipan. I became, I, I was appointed a squadron operations officer and I had to turn my crew over to another captain. I was a captain at the time. This fellow was a West Point officer and he was highly qualified and an excellent pilot, so I didn't mind turning my crew over to him but I'll have to admit that I missed flying with those men. We had trained together, we had flown quite a few missions together, and I missed working with them. But it was my duty, I just switched gears and did it. Forty-five years after the end of the war, Charles Phillips attended a moving reunion at the Plains of Fame Air Museum in Chino, California. Well, May of 1990, I had the privilege of going to the Plains of Fame Museum to see a P-38 fly. I was invited to go see a P-38. And lo and behold, when I got there, I was told that there were 15 Japanese fighter pilots who had come from Japan to see a Zero fly. They don't have any flying Zeros in Japan. They'd come all the way to California to watch this Zero performed. And incidentally, we met and talked with those men and we observed them as they were watching that zero fly, there were tears streaming down the faces of these men 45 years later. It was an interesting conversation because it was very friendly. These fighter pilots were friendly. They wanted to talk. They acted like maybe 
I was the first B-29 pilot that they'd ever talked to. They knew what we had been doing over their empire. They knew that we were the primary cause of this, of this war coming to a halt. When we had burned down their major cities and even their medium-sized cities and were starting to work on the smaller cities, they knew they could not, they just could not keep that up. General LeMay estimated that by October you wouldn't have any targets left. And it was mid-August when they finally quit. As, uh, as you might suspect, the two atomic bombs that were dropped provided the Japanese with a superb reason to stop the war. They just had an ideal way out, and that is exactly what happened. They, they just stopped on the 15th of August after the bombs were dropped on the 6th and on the 9th of August over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Did you fly, ever fly any, any of the bombers? Yes, I've flown the uh, B-47, which is the Boeing six-jet bomber with a three-man crew, which incidentally was never used in any war at all. It's a wonderful airplane in its day. It was like an overgrown fighter plane. It had six smallish engines on it so that it was not a hugely powerful aircraft like even the airliners of today have. They have so much power on these airplanes today they don't know what to do with it all. And in our day, we had to struggle with the power that we had. The B-47 had several features that were quite different from anything I'd ever flown before. The swept wing was one of them. You couldn't land the airplane in over 25 knots of crosswind because the downwind side would not provide enough lift and it could get away from you. It had a bicycle landing gear. That meant the main gear was, one was right in front of the other. The front wheel was steerable. The back wheel was not. A pair of wheels, that is. The B-47 uh, weighed a great deal at takeoff, but it handled it fine. It operated at, uh, at very high speeds at high altitude. One of the features of the B-47 that struck me as I was learning to fly the airplane was that they had a thing called the coffin corner that you could get into, where you could be flying so fast you're on the edge of turbulence due to the high Mach, the speed of sound, but you're also on the ragged edge of a stall and it, they might be within 10 knots of one another. And so you had to fly the airplane very carefully to keep it from getting into a stall or from getting into turbulence caused by the Mach. So uh, the coffin corner, you had to pay attention to the airplane when you flew it. It was a neat airplane. I think everybody that flew it enjoyed flying that airplane. I have also flown the B-52, the big ugly fat fellow or something. The Buff was a uh, huge airplane. Uh, I flew it at Grand Forks where it had the H model with the big fan jet engines in it. And among other things, I got to hang on to the boom of a KC-135 tanker for about 20 minutes. And uh, it was a neat airplane. Had great uh, flight controls that you could maneuver the airplane. The roll axis was great. The uh, other axes were, were every bit as great. I thought it was a terrific airplane, still is. Those airplanes are older than the guys that are flying them these days. I, I think that they're still very useful, and one of the reasons why they're still useful is because of their electronic countermeasures. They can do things with their electronics to keep from being attacked by missiles and so forth. And uh, they were quite successful in doing that. They were not interfered with at all in this Gulf War. And they're not too badly interfered with as they operated in Operation Linebacker in uh, the Vietnam War. We only lost 16 
B-52s in the whole Vietnam War, which to me is just absolutely remarkable, and you have to chalk that up to electronic countermeasures. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcast, And remember, don't believe everything you read. The B-52 has a crew of six, a couple of pilots and a couple of observer-type navigators that operate the radar and handle the bombing problems. And then there are two other crew members. One of them is the tail gunner. He operates a remotely controlled mount back in the tail. And the sixth person is an electronic countermeasures person. He is the cat and mouse person on the crew. He's, his mission is to defeat the enemy radar and make it so that it will not operate correctly, so that they will miss their target. And we also have other aircraft that help. They're electronic countermeasure aircraft that are designed and built to help defeat the enemy radar, the gun aiming, the gun pointing, or the missile pointing devices of an enemy. But the B-52 can take care of itself pretty well. It has considerable power and many, many options that this ECM operator can use to defend against the enemy. Was it one of the first ones that had ECM as part of the, the designing building? I'm not actually positive of that, but I yeah. feel like the B-52 probably was the first to come along that really had uh, a crew member that was set up to operate. And of course, this has been going on for years. The B-52 is quite an old airplane. But it's also been developing through the years so that it has gotten more and more efficient as we go along. Okay. Is there anything you feel we may have missed on the B-29? I might say that the B-29s were operating when we finally got the guys over there in the 58th wing into the Marianas Islands. It was a beautiful place to fight the war. It was about 15 degrees north. It was tropical. The guys could swim on the local beaches and get suntans. And when you weren't out flying the airplane, it was a very comfortable place to live in the Marianas Islands, as Guam is today. And uh, that was a kind of a refreshing feature that we didn't really learn until we got there and found out about this place called the Mariana Islands. I was on Saipan. We had many fine beaches there. It was uh, like a recreational facility. It's a tourist place today. Most of the tourists are Japanese, but they come there because it's a fine recreational island. Can we, can we just go through the B-17, uh, the handling characteristics and what the crew was required to do, you know, different crew positions? And that it was a flying fortress. I mean, they had guns everywhere. <coughs> okay. The B-17, the, the flying fortress, as it was called, was built by Boeing, had a crew of 10, a couple of pilots, a navigator, a bombardier. It had a flight engineer who was also a gunner, had a radar operator, and gunners in the rear of the aircraft, including a tail gunner. The two gunners at midships behind the wing were called waist gunners. The feature about the B-17 that was quite different from the B-29 was that the men climbed into the turret and were actually there with their hands on the guns 
they could swivel the turret and they could make their guns move up and down so they could get a bead and and do a lead really on an enemy fighter but they had to be inside the turret to do it all the ammunition was in the turret and it was just quite a different proposition with what came along in the B-29 where the turrets were remote and were handled by sighting devices in, located in the blisters. The bombardier used a sighting device right up practically next to the Norden bomb site, and he could fire the guns forward, uh, straight ahead or, or out to each side of the aircraft. We had an interesting thing happen, the one B-29 as it was over the target, suddenly the crew began to hear the aircraft whistle. And it whistled and whistled, and as they came off the coast of Japan, they started to check all through the airplane to see if they could find a hole in it, like flak would make, or like a bullet hole from a fighter might make. If they could find the hole, they could take an old rag and stuff it in the hole and stop this thing from whistling, and maybe maintain their cabin pressure. But they were, seemed to be maintaining cabin pressure okay. When they finally got on the ground back at Saipan, they found out what made their airplane whistle. They counted 36 holes in the number two propeller, and one of the interrupters had failed in one of the upper turrets, and they had shot out, just about shot out, their own propeller. It didn't make it fail. It still ran fine, but it whistled all the way back 1,300 miles from Tokyo to Saipan. And that was their own guns? Their own guns shot those holes in the number two prop because a thing called an interrupter in the gun turret had failed. That's supposed to keep them from shooting their own props out. The other three were working fine, but not the one, not the turret that shot out the number two uh, propeller. Just an overview question. Do you think that the, uh, the concept of strategic bombing to taking the, to taking the, the fight to the enemy's heartland. Um, did you think that that... Uh... With the 20th Air Force, the 20th Air Force, we got nervous when we were taken away from strategic bombing. Strategic bombing is when you attack an aircraft factory or some component of the government that's vital to it, like its petroleum industry. In uh, April of 1945, uh, General LeMay was directed by General Arnold to uh, deviate from strategic bombing and go after certain airfields on the island of Kyushu, which were launching kamikaze, the suicide pilots, against the Navy down in Okinawa. And they were taking some heavy losses from these uh, aircraft that were being launched with a view to just diving them into a U.S. ship. What we did is we went up and provided craters all over there airfield and General LeMay thought we ought to be doing some stuff that was a lot more important than cratering these airfields but he still did what he was told and we made several missions. Some of them turned into real air battles. Japanese moved some of their air defense down to Kyushu to defend their kamikaze airfields and uh, it got hairy. We lost some airplanes. We were bombing at medium altitudes about 15,000 feet or so. We would put bombs into the airfield they were rather insidious. They had up to 30 hours of delay in their fuses. Some of the bombs would go off like right now, and others of the bombs would sit there in the airfield and would be delayed until anywhere up to 30 hours later, at which time we could be back with another load, you see. 
And so, uh, and you couldn't defuse these bombs. They were designed by the Americans in such a way that you could not back the fuse out of the bomb without its going off. So you couldn't touch the bomb. It just lay there on the ground and they had to work around them. And uh, of course, they were pretty good at repairing their own airfields. And they could move their airplanes away from the airfield, actually at down little roadways or whatever to spare the aircraft. So how effective those missions were is a pretty good question. That was not strategic bombing, but it certainly was felt to be supportive of the U.S. Navy. And did you ever consider, as a, as a pilot on a bombing aircraft, did you ever consider the human cost of what was going on down, and how did you rectify that within your own mind? I suppose we thought of it from a very personal standpoint. We thought of our crew as an element. There were 11 of us in the same airplane together, usually 11. Sometimes a 12th person would go along. But uh, the, co the cost we thought about was in terms of those people manning that aircraft. Then there would be a formation in the daylight and you saw all these other aircraft around you and formations well ahead of you and you knew there were formations following you. There were thousands of men involved and uh, they were part of what was at stake. But then you could not help but sympathize with the people on the ground. There were thoughts about the folks on the ground and what they had to be suffering. In our first uh, firebombing of Tokyo on the 10th of March in 1945, it was so bad that many Japanese themselves properly figured that it was the beginning of the end for them. In Tokyo itself, there were 84,000 casualties, deaths, resulting from that first big fire that we set. That was a horrible thing. That's more casualties than there were in Hiroshima. And did you follow the Gulf War? And, and tell me, I'm sure you did, but tell me what you thought about today's bombers in relation to the ones you had, the smart bombs. And what were your impressions watching what, what I think everybody watched the Gulf War right in our living rooms. It was amazing, astounding. And many of us didn't dream that we had weapons of the smart nature that it turned out that we did. I thought that when you could put a hole through the side of a building of your choice, and put the second missile through the hole, then you had really done something. I think that the uh, we've never seen anything like it in the history of aircraft. You know, there was such a comparison between what we saw in the Gulf War and anything that happened in World War II. We did our best with the Norton bomb site, and it was extremely accurate, as long as you didn't have factors like high winds that would disturb you. Uh, if the if the bombardier could see the target and synchronize on the target, you had an excellent chance of destroying it with a formation of nine or ten aircraft. But in the Gulf War, we saw individual aircraft going in and just devastating their communication system, the radars, the coordination, and uh, many targets that we probably don't dream they hit. And it was all done like with the precision of a brain surgeon. That's the way I looked at it. After the war, Charles Phillips went on to serve in Korea and Vietnam. He retired from the United States Air Force as a colonel. In 1995, he wrote a riveting book about his World War II experiences titled Reign of Fire, B-29s over Japan, 1945. Colonel Charles L. Phillips, Jr. passed away in 2003. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of warriors in their own words, 
This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, Heroes of Our Nation on Record, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.